Okay, thank you guys so much for joining us. Open up your Bibles to Luke 1. No, I'm sorry, wrong passage. Genesis 3, 1 through 15. Genesis 3, 1 through 15. Praise God, what an awesome time of worship it is. And we're going to continue to worship as we open our hearts to God's word. Genesis 3, 1 through 15. We want to encourage you to bring your Bibles, but if you don't have it, it'll be on the screen behind me. And if you're joining us online, welcome. It'll be on your screen at home. Genesis 3, 1 through 15. Okay, this is God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Dear God, we love you, and we thank you. We thank you for this glorious time to worship you both in song and in also your word. And Lord God, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would open this word up to us, that you would give us faith to receive it. Thank you so much, Father God. Whatever you want during this time, that is what we want. So Lord, we thank you. Uh, Please be glorified today and during this entire season. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, last week we began our Advent season officially, which is a time of expectant waiting and preparation to celebrate Jesus' arrival on Christmas Day. That was a mouthful. But basically, Advent is a time to really prepare ourselves to worship Jesus as we celebrate Christmas. And Advent, that word is a Latin word, and it means arrival or coming, literally meaning the arrival or coming of Jesus, And during this Advent season, what I want to do is I want to spend time on the Emmaus Road. Amen? But I want to spend time on the Emmaus Road. And what do I mean? Well, the Emmaus Road in Luke 24 is where Jesus came alongside two very discouraged disciples after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, although they didn't know he had resurrected. And Jesus began to rekindle a fire in their hearts for him and everything that he did for them. So he began to relight this fire. And how? Well, Jesus relit a fire in their hearts by doing several different things. But we looked at this last week. He first revealed what was in their hearts to them so that they would understand what was going on in their hearts. Then he opened the scriptures to show them how it all points back to Jesus. And then finally, he offered them intimate fellowship with him. So it's such a beautiful passage. But at the beginning of the Emmaus Road, they were discouraged, broken, hopeless. And by the end, they said, aren't our hearts burning within us? So Jesus lit a fire. And so Jesus lit this fire in their hearts. And this fire really centered on seeing Christ in all of Scripture. Yes, all of it contributed the fellowship with Jesus 
them understanding what was going on. But at the center of it all, it was really about seeing Christ in all of Scripture. Everything connected to that. The disciples said in Luke 24, 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So do you see that? Their hearts really began to burn because they started seeing Jesus in all of the Old Testament. So that's what I want for us during this Advent season, but I want God to open up the scriptures to us, amen? So that we would begin to see Christ all throughout the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, that through the scriptures, we begin to fellowship with Jesus. Okay, this is what I'm praying. This is what I'm wanting. And as we begin to do that as a church during Advent, our hearts are going to begin to burn. And let's be honest. How many of us really need that? We need a fire to be relit in our hearts. Okay, I need that. Just the other day, I was just praying, going, God, you need to light a new fire in my heart. We're heading into a new year. You need to give me this renewed passion for you to start a whole new year, and Jesus will do it. But we have to draw near to him. We have to worship him, but in a way that he decides. He has prescribed, and that is through his word, as we begin to see him in all of scripture. And so there is a direct connection between burning hearts and seeing Christ in the scriptures. And so today what I want to do is I want to begin to do that. I actually want to do that. We're not going to look at the Emmaus Road again. That was kind of the intro to the whole series. But starting today and for the rest of December, we're going to look at different Old Testament passages pointing to Christ. And I'm just going to believe in faith that as we do, God's going to begin to fellowship with us through that. And he's going to light a fire in our hearts through that. So we're going to look at the first Old Testament passage pointing to Christ. So in fact, what we're going to look at today is the first mention of Jesus' birth in the entire Bible. You could say it is the first mention of Christmas in the entire Bible. And this passage is Genesis 3.15. So we just read it. But this is the first time Jesus' birth is mentioned, the first Christmas passage. But God actually spoke these words talking to Satan here. So this is very interesting. But the first mention of Christmas in the Bible was spoken to Satan. <laughs> That's where we get the first Christmas story told. But God said this to Satan, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And Bible scholars have a name for this. It's called proto-euangelion. That's one of those expensive words. They have to pay a lot of tuition money to learn. Not really, you could just look it up online. <laughs> but it's one of those really fancy words. But all it means is first gospel. This is the first mention of the gospel, proto-euangelion. I like that word. You can say it to yourself, proto-euangelion. But Genesis 3.15 is the first mention of the gospel. And it's really a prophecy of Jesus' first coming and what he will do once he is here, once he is born and growing up here. This is God's promise right at the dawn of creation of how he would save human beings from the big mess that they made. How he would save all of us through a second Adam who would succeed in the exact places where the first Adam failed. We're going to look at that. And that second Adam is Christ. He is the true and better Adam. So this is what this promise, this glorious prophecy is talking about. But what does all of that really mean? Okay, what, what does that mean? Okay, second Adam, he's going to do what the first Adam couldn't do. He's going to crush the head of Satan. I mean, what does that mean? Well, in order to fully appreciate these words of Jesus coming as the true and better Adam, we need to see the bigger context. So we're going to look at the context today. But we need to see what was lost, and then what was promised, and then finally what was redeemed. So we're going to look at that, and all of that is found in Genesis 3 and also the surrounding passages. But what was lost, what was promised, and then finally what was redeemed. And as we begin to understand this, as your minds get filled with the word of God and how it all points to Jesus, I'm really hoping fire, right? There's going to be a fire. You know, there was a little saying that I kept hearing when I was in seminary, but my professors and just students there kept saying, theology leads to doxology. Theology leads to doxology. And in the beginning, I'm like, what does that mean? But soon I found out, 
But theology, the study of God, should lead to doxology, which means the praise of God, the worship of God. So if you learn the Bible, if you're doing it correctly, it shouldn't just end with head knowledge, but it should end in worship. It should end with fire in your heart. So this is what I'm praying. So again, we're going to look at the context of all of this, right? How Genesis 3 points to Jesus. And as we learn that theology, hopefully it's going to lead to doxology. Amen? So first, what was lost? Okay, what was lost? Look at Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Moses, who wrote Genesis, he said, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, and I just want to stop there for a moment. But Genesis 3 is not telling us where snakes today came from. Okay, sometimes I'm reading commentaries. I'm like, why are you going on pages and pages about this? This is not a lesson on zoology. It's not talking about what snakes were like before the fall. But that is not what the serpent is. So ancient people, as soon as they began to read Genesis 3, didn't read this and think, hey, look, a talking snake. Okay, that's not what ancient people thought. That's what modern people think. That's what you might have thought reading this. But ancient people, they're not dumb. They knew better. They knew that snaking, uh, not snaking talks, talking snakes aren't real. Talking snakes aren't real. And they knew that this was not an actual snake, but rather they knew that this was a divine being. Anytime these kind of creation narratives and these stories in the Bible, which I believe are describing real events, but they know talking animals or strange creatures are divine beings. And so here, this is a divine being represented by a snake. And the word, the Hebrew word that our English Bible says serpent, actually points to that, that this is a divine being. But the Hebrew word nakash actually has several different meanings, three different meanings, in fact. It can mean serpent, but it can also mean deceiver or shining one. And what does that sound like? But those are all words that are used throughout the Bible to describe one person, the same person all throughout, Satan. So whether a serpent or deceiver or shining one, the luminous one, is all pointing back to the same person. And it's all in that same word, that one Hebrew word. John said in Revelation 12, 9, and the great dragon was thrown down here to earth, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So right there, several of those words are used all to describe him, right? And by the way, the word Satan, some people think that's his first name, like John or Betty. That's not his name. But Satan just means adversary or enemy. So God just calls him the enemy. He's our adversary. So this is who the serpent is. And ancient people knew this. They're not dumb. They're not, they don't believe in talking snakes. They knew that this was a divine being represented by this snake, and it was pointing to Satan, the adversary. So the serpent or Satan said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So right there in just a few words, Satan began to undo everything God has set up. And by doing that, he plunged humanity into sin. So he began to unravel everything. And every sin plaguing the world today is represented right here in these words, in that conversation between Satan and Eve. It's truly amazing what God was able to put into the single conversation in Scripture. And the reason why every sin plaguing the world today is represented here is because Satan's strategy has never changed. Why change your strategy when it's so effective? And so everything we see today is still, or seeing that passage is still here today. So let me just quickly mention them. But first, Satan usurped God's order of sacrificial headship or leadership within marriage relationships. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.3, God's order of sacrificial headship is God the father, then Christ, then husband, then wife. What did Satan do when he showed up and tempted Eve? He went first to the woman in order to get to the man in order to get to God. 
So he completely reversed that order. And he not only reversed the order, but he got Eve to pursue headship. A headship that God had given sovereignly to Adam. Doesn't make Adam better. Doesn't make Eve worse. But that's just who God gave it to. But he got Eve to pursue headship selfishly, not sacrificially. Which is the way Adam was commanded to exercise headship. Sacrificially. But he got Eve to pursue headship selfishly. And at the very same time, he got Adam to give up his responsibility as the sacrificial leader and head by becoming passive. And this was a selfish passivity. He didn't want the responsibility. And women, you don't need to answer this, but how many men do you know who are exactly like that? I struggle with that. But oftentimes, you know, there's this whole debate of, oh, you know, how come men get to be the head and all this? Well, here's the truth. A lot of guys don't want it. <laughs> they don't want that responsibility. It's a headship to serve and sacrifice and lay down your life. And frankly, a lot of guys don't want that. And so here's Adam, tempted by the enemy to become selfish and passive. And Satan is still reversing everything God set up today. In that single encounter, everything began to get undone. You know, recently the Barbie movie came out. I don't know if you guys saw that. If you haven't, please don't, please don't see it. <laughs> but the director of that movie explained why the story of Barbie is so powerful. But this is what she said, and I quote, Barbie was invented first. Ken was invented after Barbie. I was like, oh yeah, I never thought about that. That's so true. <laughs> to burnish Barbie's position in our eyes and in the world, that kind of creation myth is the opposite of the creation myth in Genesis. I didn't even know if she knew the Bible. But did you hear that? She's like, this is why this is so empowering, so powerful, is doing away with that old myth in Genesis. It's the opposite, it's the reverse. And it makes you wonder where that kind of thinking comes from. It makes you really wonder. Well, this undoing and reversing of God's creation has been Satan's strategy from the very beginning. And based on how many marriages today are either struggling or being destroyed, his strategy is very effective. It is very effective. And later we see the immediate breakdown of the marriage relationship in verse 12. But the man said, once they were tempted, they ate the fruit, now judgment, everything is being undone. And God came to Adam and said, Adam, what happened? Notice who he came to first. Adam, you're the responsible one. You're the one I gave the responsibility to. You're the leader. What happened, Adam? Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. <laughs> That's the wrong answer, Adam. Because Adam, who should have been Eve's protector and defender, now became what? He is now her accuser. Right? The defender of Eve now became the accuser of Eve. And in that moment, every husband is suddenly filled with guilt. We've all been there. Rather than defending and protecting my wife, how many times have I accused my wife of many things? Don't answer, Joe. <laughs> She's right here. But this is every man now. But do you see this? The marriage relationship, and in fact, all relationships are suddenly disintegrating. They're disintegrating. So here's the first thing that was lost. It was God's order of creation in our relationships especially the marriage relationship, but it goes far beyond that, all relationships. But the relationships that God has set up beautifully in order to flourish humanity so that people would sacrifice for one another and have unique roles. We're all equal. We all have dignity before God. We're all valued equally before God, but we all have different roles. But God set it up that way so that we would all serve each other, sacrifice for each other, and flourish one another. All of that is disintegrating. So that's the first thing we lost. Here's the second thing. Satan also undermined God's word in several ways. He began to undermine the foundation, the only foundation that our life can be built upon, but God's word. So how did Satan undermine God's word? Okay, first, these are going to be quick. He questioned God's word in verse 1. He questioned it. He said, did God actually say and with that single question, he undermined completely Adam and Eve's trust in God's word. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, why did God say that? Number two, he then twisted God's word in verse one again. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Do you guys notice 
God never said that. He twisted it. God never said that you can't eat of every or any tree in the garden. He just said you can't eat of one tree. Every other tree has been given to you for food and is good for the eyes, is good for food. But just one tree, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Satan twisted that. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? Number three, he then got Eve to add to God's word things God didn't say. He tempted Eve to add. Verse three, and then Eve said, God told us you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So did you notice that? Again, God never said that. He never said, don't even touch the tree. He just said, don't eat as fruit. You can eat of any tree in the garden. It's all for you. It's all to bless you. Just don't eat of this one tree. But he never mentioned touching it or anything like that. And yet, tempted by the enemy, Eve added to God's word. She went beyond God's word in order to make God look more strict and more harsh. And how many people do that today? Adding to God's word. Number four, Satan then undermined God's word by flat out rejecting it in verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You're not going to die. That's a direct rejection of it. Derek Kidner, he's a great Bible teacher, but he said this, the first doctrine to be denied in the Bible is this, God's judgment. If you wonder, what's the very first doctrine, teaching of the Bible that is flat out rejected is God's judgment. And again, people all throughout the world are still denying that today, more than ever. There's no heaven or hell. There's no hell. And even if there is, we're all going to heaven, right? Everyone, by default, we're just going to go to heaven. So they flat out rejected God's word. And then finally, Satan offered a substitute for God's word. He offered Adam and Eve secret knowledge that would somehow save them. Look at verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So that was meant to be some sort of a knowledge that they didn't have. Hey, I have this knowledge for you. If you just understand what I'm telling you, you're going to become like God. So in rapid fire, Satan undermined God's word completely and he gave them a different foundation for their lives. See, up until that point, Adam and Eve were very trusting and innocently just trusting in what God told them, and that was what their lives were built upon. And in one conversation, Satan completely undermined that. So here's the second thing that they lost, but they lost God's order and relationship, right? First, well, now they lost God's word as the sure foundation for their lives, the only foundation that they can build their lives upon. Many thousands of years later, Jesus actually came here and he said, if you put into practice my words, you'll build your house on the rock. Everything else is what? Sinking sand. Well, guess what Satan did here? He moved Adam and Eve from the rock to now sinking sand. They're on sinking sand. And every single one of these tactics to undermine God's word are everywhere today. And I'm not going to repeat the whole series we went through in 2 Peter because we spent many, many weeks looking at that. But everywhere you look, social media, in books, churches, even in the pulpit, all those different ways of undermining God's word, you just see it everywhere. Satan is very busy. But that last one, okay, going back to that last one, where he offered them secret knowledge to somehow become like God, again, Satan said, if you eat the fruit of that tree, you will be like God. Okay, that one was especially insidious and destructive. It's almost like if I was God watching that, I would want to just reach out and choke the serpent, right? <laughs> it's like that was especially destructive because he took the best God that you can possibly have, Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, who is the very essence of righteousness, wisdom, and love itself. God is love, amen? God is wisdom. God is righteousness itself. And he took that God and then he exchanged him for the worst God you can possibly have, which is who? You, me, ourselves. So this is, in that single moment, what Satan offered. Oh, you don't need that God, the best God you could have. You could have yourself as God, which is the worst God you can have. And again, this, by the way, is what every life guru, self-help book, and Disney movie, yes, Disney, <laughs> promotes today. 
Okay, everywhere you look today, this is the message. How to follow your heart. Take control of your life. Achieve all of your dreams. What is that? You're the God of your life. And if that's your truth, then you've exchanged the best God you can possibly have, Yahweh, for the worst God you can possibly have yourself. You've already made that exchange. If that's your life, that's your truth. And that will end in only one way, destruction and death. This is the only reason why Satan is pumping that message so hard today. Why is that everywhere today? Because Satan is behind this world, and he knows. As soon as people accept it, death, destruction. So this is insidious. But here's something else. When Satan promised Adam and Eve secret knowledge to become like God, he was deliberately causing Adam and Eve to forget this glorious truth. They were already like God. Right? They're already like God. Why? Because just a few pages back in your Bible, we read what? They were created gloriously in what? God's image. They were already like God. It says in Genesis 1, 26 through 27, then God said, let us make man in our own image, in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So Adam and Eve were both gloriously created already to look like God. God wanted a family. You know, I'm learning this kind of new teaching that I think the Jewish people have believed for a long time. Now is something that a lot of evangelical Christian theologians are talking about. God already had a group of people in heaven called the divine council, created beings. You can call them angelic beings who served him, he had fellowship with them, but God wanted more. He actually wanted a human family. He didn't just want an angelic family, he wanted a human family here on the earth. And how are you gonna have a family? You gotta have people who look like you, right? That's a family. You know, some of you guys say that my son Isaiah is Roy (laughs) 2.0. And I go, yeah, he is 2.0, he's a better version of me. But it's true, you know, my my kids look like me, especially Isaiah, I guess. But this is what God wanted. God wanted a human family that he could be in fellowship with and enjoy each other and do things together and accomplish great things together upon the earth. And so he made Adam and Eve gloriously in his own image. So they were clearly a part of creation. Okay, they were not gods. They were creatures They were created on the sixth day along with everything else. So there's no difference there. They're creatures. And yet they were special. Because it says when God created man, it was very good. See, that's different from everything else. That was good. But this was very good. And in Genesis 2, it says that God created Adam and Eve very differently. He breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. And if you were to read the entire Genesis account, no animal was created like that. God never did that to any other living thing. It's only man and woman where he breathed directly his breath of life. And some Bible scholars believe that breath of God breathed into Adam and then later Eve, that's where the image of God comes from. I'm not gonna die on that, (laughs) maybe. But whatever God did, his image came into that living being, man and woman. And so when he breathed into them his very life force, the qualities of his own soul. I'm talking about his intellect, emotions, will, his morality, his creativity. He breathed all of it into human beings. We're made in his image. And because Adam and Eve were created by God, like the rest of creation, and yet they were uniquely created in the image of God, they had a very special place in creation. Amen? We are not like animals. There are a lot of colleges right now, you can get an entire degree in transhumanism. Transhumanism is totally satanic and pagan, but it's basically talking about how human beings are just a continuation of animals, we've heard that for a long time, but that we can continuously evolve into other kinds of creatures, other forms of, you know, animal. No, 
Human beings are unique. We have a unique place in creation. But Adam and Eve, together as a unit, because they are part of creation but also different, they could be what? Mediators. Mediators between creation and God. See, they can represent both. So they could speak to the world on behalf of God, and they could speak to God on behalf of the world. They could do both. Why? Because they are unique image bearers of God, and yet they are part of creation. Okay, what else? They could also serve as rulers over this creation. Why? Because they are a part of the creation. This is their home. This is where we live, and yet we are different. There's a part of us that's from heaven. And so we have the authority from God to rule over this earth, to steward it, take care of it. And so what all of this means is Adam and Eve, and now all of us, represented creation before, before God. We represent creation before God, and especially Adam as the head of all of humanity. Okay, Adam and Eve together as a unit, but Adam was the leader of even that relationship, right? So especially Adam. Adam was the head and representative of creation before God. And whatever happened to him and then Eve would happen to creation. So what a responsibility. What a place of privilege. And yet they wanted to be like God, although they already were like God, in the image of God. But they were tempted away from that and they disobeyed him. So then now look at Genesis 3, 6 through 7. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and by the way, this is an anatomy of sin and temptation. We don't have time to get into it. But sin is always about the external, always about what you see, right? What, what looks good. And she saw that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of his fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. By the way, I don't know why I want to share this right now, but a lot of you guys have Apple phones, right? Apple, that's fine. <laughs> but I heard Steve Jobs say this is directly the passage. He got the logo for Apple. He's like, I want to start a company where we ate the fruit. Okay, that's why the apple has a bite out of it. Weird, right? Why do you want to start a company that's based on this? This was something bad when I read the Bible, <laughs> right? It wasn't good that they bit the fruit. Anyway, keep using your phones. Okay. <laughs> Then the eyes of both were open, and that's why I'm an Android guy. Anyway, <laughs> then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. By the way, that's so weird. I don't know. I'm gonna, it's just weird. Okay, so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. Now, there are different interpretations on what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. Okay, so what's the big deal about this tree? Well, we don't have time to go into it. But whatever it is, exactly, it gave them knowledge that God was wanting to keep them from. Okay, one interpretation is it gave them experiential knowledge of good and evil. And that would make sense that God would want to keep them from that. See, this isn't talking about a simple discernment between good and evil. I mean, that's a good thing. Why would God keep us from wanting that? Okay, God actually commands us to be discerning. You should know the difference between good and evil. But what God might have been keeping them from was an experiential knowledge. See, it's one thing to know that being a drug addict is bad. It's a whole other thing to know that because I am a drug addict, right? God's saying you don't need to actually experience it. Be discerning, but you don't need experiential knowledge. So that could be it. So if they had obeyed God, they would have had experiential knowledge of good. But because they disobeyed God, now they had an experiential knowledge of evil, which God did not want. Eating of the fruit could have also given them wisdom or insight into good and evil, the kind that God had. So that could be another interpretation. God has this special insight into what good and evil is that really isn't for human beings, and yet they ate it, and now they know. Well, we can't be sure 100% what this is pointing to, but they disobey God by eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And now in that moment, everything began to die and disintegrate. And this is what sin does every single time, brothers and sisters. And so we're still talking about what we've lost, but we have lost everything because Adam and Eve as a unit, as the head and representative of all of us, they plunged all of us in this world into sin and death and disintegration. So sin disintegrates everything. Sin begins to disintegrate man's relationship with one another. We already saw that. Adam, instead of defending Eve, began to accuse Eve. Eve began to 
dominate over Adam. It disintegrated man's relationship with creation. Creation itself began to disintegrate. It disintegrated man's relationship with the self. They became shamed. Before they were confident in who they were in God. Now they're hiding from God. They're ashamed. Right? They're trying to cover themselves up. And many of us do that even today. We walk around kind of like in a, in a wheelchair. Not walk around. We, we roll around in a wheelchair, an invisible wheelchair. We have an invisible crutch. Why? Because we're not whole. So even our relationship with ourselves begin to disintegrate. And then finally, man's relationship with God disintegrated. Okay, the worst of all. It says in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. Okay, this is their father. This is the one who created them and breathed life into them. The one who wanted a, a family. God just wanted a human family. Out of love, he created them. And now they're running away. So by the way, this is the first run away from home story. <laughs> but they ran away from home. Like a teenager who hates their mom and dad. But they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord and God among the trees of the garden. And since the fall of Adam and Eve, every human being still now still runs away from God and hides from God. And we know that's true. And because humanity's vital connection with God had been severed, death. Now, death really entered into creation. You know, recently, different people that Jill and I know, different people close to us, they had experienced death of family members. And we heard about it. We've been actually praying with them. But this is a very normal thing, right? Death is a very common and normal thing in our world. And yet, death is not a part of the cycle of life. Okay, that song from Lion King, again, Disney, not good. <laughs> it's not true. It's not a part of the cycle of life. But the Bible says death is an enemy, is an intruder. And deep down, everyone knows it. And that's why we distract ourselves from death. We don't want to think about it. We ignore it. And for those who have the resources, they try to eliminate it. But I remember reading an article not long ago about the number one thing that billionaires spend their money on. Do you know what it is? See, us, we're not that wealthy, most of us, and so when we get resources, we might buy a car, some clothes, a television, but the billionaires, they have all that. They have everything they would want. So what did they spend their money on? They want to live forever. They spend all their money on trying to live longer, and it's true. They said, by far, that's what billionaires spend all, most of their resources on, trying to chase eternity. Even if they could just live to 150, why not 150? Why not 180? Why not 200? But death always wins, right? Death will always win. And so why? Well, it's because of this. What happened to Adam and Eve, everything began to disintegrate. One sin was here, and then now death came. So look at this hopeless situation. Okay, look at the disintegration and loss of everything good in this world. Okay, look at how the perfect order that God has set up began to unravel. Look at the entrance of death itself. And then on top of that, look at God's judgment upon man's sin as you read about later in chapter 3. So these are all the consequences that are everywhere today. This is the world we live in. Okay? This isn't hard to see. This is everywhere. And I remember one time when I was doing college ministry, this one student came to our church and then I had met with him for lunch. And then we were just talking about like, you know, just some different things and he wasn't really a believer. And he, and he asked, hey, uh, Roy, what are you reading there? And I just kind of lifted up the book going, oh, yeah, this is talking about, like, sin and how we're all born with sin. And I remember the student looked at me going, that is so obviously not true. <laughs> and I said, uh, this is the most well-attested to teaching of the Bible. Just look at your life. Just look at the world. What do you mean it's obviously not true? Well, some people don't want to acknowledge it, but if you just open your eyes, this is exactly the world we live in. Okay, everything's falling apart. There is death. Okay, there is sin. So then what can humanity possibly do? Okay, what hope is there? And this is where when you go back to chapter 3, there is a glimmer of hope right from the beginning. Okay, and now we're going to get into the, the Christmas story. But there is hope right from the beginning. But right after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, what happened to them? Well, their eyes got opened. They saw that they were naked. They became ashamed. They had their own view of themselves disintegrated. 
But beyond that, what happened to them? Did they die? No, they didn't die. Now, death did enter. They were going to die eventually, but they lived for 900 more years. <laughs> That's hardly a death sentence, right, for eating the fruit. They lived another 900 more years. So right from the beginning, as you read that story, you're like, okay, now God keeps his word. He is a holy God, but something's going on here. They didn't die right away. And not only that, but once God saw what happened, and he already knew, right, he's sovereign, it says in verse 9, but then the Lord God, as he was walking through the garden in the cool of the day, he called to the man and said to him, where are you? Hey, Adam, where are you? Because they're hiding, right? And so even right there with that simple question, where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? You can tell there was a different tone, right? Sometimes we read this, where are you? <laughs> but that's not the way, that, that's, not, that's not the context. Okay, God wasn't enraged. But right before that, it says he was just strolling in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam, where are you? And so already there's a, there's a hopeful tone. And so then afterwards, it says in verse 21, God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and then he clothed them because they were ashamed for being naked. And right there, a lot of theologians point out that, yes, death had entered creation because of sin. So now the first animals died, but that death led to something good. It covered their shame. It provided something they needed. So this possibly could be pointing already at the very beginning, what? Jesus' death in the future that eventually would cover our shame, provide what we desperately need. So already, right, the, the, this is kind of there. This is hopeful. And then after they were, you know, judged by God and driven out of the garden, what does it say? Shortly after in verse 20, the man then called his wife's name Eve. So up until now, the woman didn't have a name. Eve wasn't called Eve all throughout the garden passage. But now after they're away from the garden, Adam gave her a name. Your name is going to be Eve. Why? Because you will be the mother of all living. So again, something hopeful is happening, right? There should have been death. We should be dead. God said, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. And yet they're not dead. And there's something about what God told them that there's hope. We believe that we're going to keep living. And in fact, my wife is going to be the mother of all the living. They're going to keep producing more life. So do you see this? Right away in the Bible, there's hope. And then finally, in verse 15, you see it. Okay, here it is. It all comes into focus. So why was Adam and Eve so hopeful, even as they received the judgment of God, even as they knew they were under a death sentence, why were they hopeful? Because of this great promise, verse 15. I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman. He's talking to Eve and Satan. And between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And there it is, right? This is where all the hope began to flow. So God, right from the beginning, when man and woman fell into sin, God already knew right there at the dawn of creation that I'm going to one day reverse all of this and restore everything that I did, and even greater, how? Through an offspring, through you, Eve. You're going to continue to live on. You're going to have many children. Those children are going to have children. Children are and then eventually, I'm going to, out of that population, select one man to be my special servant, Abraham. And then from him, he's going to have children and children and children and children until finally, there's going to be a seed who's going to come. So that word seed, the seed of the woman, that could refer to both humanity at large, all of humanity, and also the one who's coming, the special seed who's coming, is both. But the seed of the woman is humanity and then ultimately the Messiah, but there's somebody coming. There's somebody coming. And by the way, from this point on, every Jewish woman, when they read Genesis 3.15, from that point on, they desired to be that woman. They wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. And this is why another name for Jesus is the desire of women. By the way, in Daniel 11, this is just a little throw-in bonus, 
But when Daniel talked about the Antichrist who will come one day and he will have no regard for the desire of women, a lot of people read that going, oh, is he going to be gay? Is he going to be a homosexual? And that's not what it means at all. It doesn't mean he has no desire for women. What it means is he has no regard for the Messiah. That's a nickname for Jesus. He is the one women desired. He is the one beloved by women. Women all throughout the centuries, Jewish women, wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. Why? Because of this right here. So look at this glorious prophecy. And yet, God is honest about this ongoing struggle, though. This ongoing struggle until he finally comes. But there will be another seed, the seed of the serpent. And we don't have any time to go into this, but this is most likely referring to these angelic beings that came down to earth, had relations with women, this race of people were here on the earth in Genesis 6, onward. It's talking about possibly, another interpretation is the descendants of Cain, a different line that went away from God. That's the seed of Satan that is going to be constantly struggling against the seed of the Messiah. Either way, there's going to be a great struggle. But in the midst of that, there is so much hope because God ended that prophecy by saying what? He shall bruise your head, Satan, even though you're going to bite his heel. So you're going to hurt him, but ultimately he's going to crush your head. He's going to be the bone crusher. That's another nickname for Jesus. I like that one, bone crusher, head crusher, right? The crushing one. That actually is a nickname. The Bible uses that to refer to the Messiah, the crushing one. He will crush the head of Satan. So that's the great promise. That is the first reference to Christmas. This is what Christmas is all about. Christmas is all about Jesus, the crushing one, the desire of women who will come one day finally to reverse all this. So then now we come to our final point, what was redeemed. So we saw what was lost, what was promised, now finally what was redeemed. Look at verses, look at Romans 5, 17 through 19. So now you fast forward all the way to the New Testament and now things are crystal clear. Okay, what this Messiah, this head crusher came to do. Romans 5.17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, who is that man? Adam. How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So the New Testament brings into sharp focus and says, you know, the first Adam brought death. He was our head, our representative. Because of him, now we all die. We will all die, physically at least. But because the second Adam came, he brought what? Life. Life. So how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life? That's the emphasis there, life, through the second Adam. If you look on in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, it says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Okay, same thing. Because of the first Adam, death is here. Everything's disintegrating. Now Jesus came as the second Adam to reverse it. He is a life-giving spirit. And so Jesus is actually a second Adam. He is Another form of Adam that is here. Paul actually says that in Romans 5.14. Adam, who was a type or foreshadow of the one who was to come, Jesus. So when you look at everything Adam represented before he fell, that is a picture of the greater one who is to come. So Jesus is the true and better Adam who came. And when he came, he changed everything. Amen? This is the Christmas story, brothers and sisters. So Jesus obeyed. The second Adam obeyed where the first Adam fell. See, when Adam and Eve were placed in the garden and God told them, don't eat of that tree, most theologians believe this, and I believe it too. It makes sense. But it wasn't a permanent holiness and permanent eternal life that they had. But the reason why they were being tested is because it was a probationary holiness and eternal life that they had. Probationary means that you need to pass a test in order to get it, right? Permanently. But they had probationary holiness and probationary eternal life. And it would remain temporary until they passed God's test. That's why they put, uh, God put them in the garden and said, don't eat of that tree. 
And once they passed the test, they would have received permanent righteousness and holiness and eternal life. And yet, unfortunately, they didn't. And along with them, we all plunged into sin. But when Jesus, the second Adam, came, he passed every test. He did. Especially when he was led into the wilderness and Satan tempted him. And there's a lot of parallel between the testing of Adam and Eve in the garden and Satan tempting Jesus in the desert. We don't have time to look at all of it, but it matches. But Jesus passed every test. And then he died on the cross to take our failings of the test. And then he rose again from the dead. And once and for all, he secured permanent righteousness and permanent eternal life to everyone who now believes. This is what the second Adam did. He also manifested God's divine image truly and brilliantly when the first Adam marred it. He, he just screwed it all up. It's all graffitied. It's all torn up. And yet when Jesus came, he brilliantly restored it more than ever before. But listen to Ed Clowney, but he wrote a lot on this, but he said, Christ came as the second Adam, not as a divine afterthought, but as the one chosen from the foundation of the world to manifest all that the divine image of man may mean. I'll read that again. He was the chosen one from the foundation of the world to manifest all that the divine image in man may mean. Christ is more than a substitute for Adam, a stand-in, as it were, to succeed where Adam failed. No, he is the true Adam, head of the new and true humanity. Why? Because he restored the image of God. Now, when you look at Jesus, you're like, oh, that's what human beings were supposed to be. That's who we were created to be and do. That's the true reflection of God's image in human beings. Jesus restored it. So do you see how glorious this is? Jesus began to reverse everything. And then when Eve, finally, when Eve said, take and eat, and then she gave the fruit to Adam, they were doing what? They were trying to become more than they are. They were trying to become like God. And that resulted in death. But when the second Adam, Jesus, came thousands of years later, he said those same words. We should have recognized those words. They're intentionally the exact same. Jesus also said, take and eat. But rather than giving something that would lead to death, he did what? He became nothing. He didn't try to become more than he is. He became nothing, right? Take and eat. I'm going to become nothing. And through that, there's going to be eternal life. Do you see this? This is all intentional. God intentionally made all these things very similar so that we would see the contrast. So what does this all mean? Jesus is the true and better Adam. He came to undo everything. There is no hope. You can be a billionaire. I'm going to live forever. No, you're not. I'm going to have a perfect life. No, you're not. You're going to screw everything up. You are the worst God you could have, and you are there. Humanity is there. We are trying to live our own lives, our own way. So what is our hope? We must look to the true and better Adam, Jesus. But Jesus came so much more to do so much more than even just restore individuals. But finally, and we're coming to a close, Jesus not only restored Adam and Eve and humanity individually, everyone who comes to him, but he will one day restore the entire world to become a global Garden of Eden. So if you're like a tree hugger and you're all into like the whole environmental movement, I mean, there's some good things there. But far more than that, study your Bible. <laughs> and you should pray for Jesus' return. Because when Jesus comes back, he's going to restore, restore the entire earth to a global garden of Eden. And in Revelation 22, 1 through 6, you see that so clearly. Then the angel showed me, John, the river of the water of life. This is after the great tribulation, after Jesus comes back establishes his kingdom here on earth, and now there's something different, right? The whole earth has changed. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This isn't heaven. This is here on earth. And then listen, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Do you guys see that? The tree of life made a comeback. <laughs> I don't know if this is the first time it's mentioned again since Genesis 2 and 3, but it's not mentioned that often. But here it is. It came back. 
The tree of life is here again with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So earlier when Adam and Eve sinned, they were driven out of the garden and two cherubs stood with flaming swords of fire to guard them, to protect, I should say, the tree of life so that they couldn't come back and eat of it. That was God's judgment on them. But here, because now the second Adam came, the tree of life is in the center of this restored earth and the whole nations can come and eat his fruit. The tree of life gives eternal life. It, is, it gives fruit for all the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. Again, this is just reversing everything in the garden. Remember what happened after they fell? It says they hid from the presence of God. The word in Hebrew is literally the face of God. They hid from the face of God. Again, their father, they ran away from their dad. But now they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The angel said it's gonna happen. Guaranteed. And so brothers and sisters, this is why Jesus came on Christmas day. See, all of this, we got to bring all of this into our worship of him. It's not just about, oh yeah, Jesus, so cute, you became a baby so that I would go to heaven one day. Thank you for saving me. Yes, that's true. But there is so much more that the Bible has to say about what Jesus came to do, amen? And so he is the true and better Adam. This is the true Adam that we're going to be celebrating and worshiping on Christmas Day. And even during this Advent season, as you're trying to get through your life, get through the season, just slow down for a moment and spend time with him. Let him open the scriptures to you as you open the Bible. Let him open it spiritually to you so that you will see these things. And as you fellowship with this second Adam, you should ask yourself, Jesus, if this is all true, if you are here, if you are real, then Lord, restore what is going on in your life during this season? Okay, what brokenness is there? You should bring that before the second Adam. He will restore you. Okay, what sin is there that is destroying your life, causing things to disintegrate? Okay, what shame are you carrying around? What, what is broken inside of you where your identity is shattered? Right? What is it inside of you that's making you hide and run away from God? I mean, you're barely here at church because someone brought you. I mean, what is it that is not working? What sin is there? What impossible situation? You should bring all of it to the second Adam. That's why he came on Christmas Day. You know, just this past week, my mom and I, we met up. We haven't uh, talked in a while. But she came to the office. She picked me up. We went and got lunch. And I remember after lunch, we were driving back. And she just spontaneously started just sharing about the past. She's like, oh, yeah, Roy. The other day, I was just praying. And I was thinking about all the things that we've been through as a family, right? And she just started sharing all the crazy things, the broken things, the hard things. But she didn't stop there, but she began to share how God just completely reversed it. And it's already 12. I don't have time to share anything about that. You've already heard a lot of it. But God completely reversed, point by point, all the different things, all the brokenness and sin in our family, all the fractured relationships, Okay, all the things that seemed hopeless. And as she was sharing, I'm just driving right back to the office, and she kept sharing, and I shared as well. And we talked for so long that even though we got back to the office, I just parked my car, and we just sat there. Like for another, I don't know how long, 10, 15 minutes, just kept talking about what God had done. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly what God wants to do for you. Okay, that's the same testimony God has for you. Amen? See, this is the second Adam. This is why he came on Christmas. So let's just come before the Lord now. Let's just bow our heads. But he's inviting you. Come, fellowship with him. And as you do, your heart will burn. Even as I had that talk with my mom, fellowshipping with her, sharing all those things Jesus had done, our hearts began to burn. He is so good. Thank you, Lord God. You are so good. Who is like you? Who is like you?
once we clearly see what the first Adam did, and the hopeless situation we were plunged into because of him and Eve, then who truly in history could have reversed that? Who, who could be the second Adam that, that would come and reverse everything and, and, and not only just do it again, but even do it better? Muhammad? Could Muhammad be the second Adam? Buddha? Joseph Smith? Gandhi? Your favorite hero? Who could be the second Adam other than Jesus Christ? The Messiah? The desire of women? The bone crusher, the head crusher who came to crush the head of Satan? reverse everything that happened. He's the only one, brothers and sisters. So let's just worship him. He's the one we are celebrating this season. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's just come before him right now. Thank you, Lord Jesus.